Luke chapter 12 again this week. Some of you may have seen this. There's a Baptist preacher from Oklahoma who's become the latest um, viral video sensation on YouTube. Uh, he was preaching from Leviticus 2020, which is a passage about adultery, when he began to make parenthetical statements about members of his congregation. So in this video, which the church produced, he tells a student not to go to sleep on him. He says, you can treat your teachers that way, but you're not going to treat me that way. I'm important. And then he tells a man that he's the sorriest church member that he has and adds that he isn't worth 15 cents. He says, you're not worth 15 cents. And then he calls out the guy in the audio video room and warns him not to set up his own little kingdom. And he tells his mother not to try to get between them and, and soften the rebuke. Well, there was a flurry of media attention sparked by this rant, and Christianity Today polled Christian leaders asking the question, should pastors rebuke parishioners from the pulpit? And some respondents, like Will Willimon from Duke, said yes, but most said no, it wasn't appropriate to do that. It should be done privately. But I wonder what they would think of this. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what's inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And it goes on like that. In Matthew, Jesus says, woe to you. You cross over oceans to make a single convert and then you turn him into twice the son of hell you are. Jesus didn't pull any punches. Still, I think there's a significant difference between the rebukes that he issued here and the ones the Oklahoma preacher spoke. Jesus pointed out hypocrisy and injustice within a group. That preacher pointed out the failings of individuals to a group, which is a very different thing. Jesus was concerned about others' welfare. It seems from the things that he said the preacher was concerned about his own. But both that preacher from Oklahoma and Jesus started a firestorm with their comments. The Oklahoma preacher has been the subject of debate and sometimes derision ever since, but look at the end of Luke 11. This is verses 53 and 54. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely. That's a really strong word in Greek. They are just, they are fuming and outraged and to besiege him with questions, wanting to, waiting to catch him in something he might say. As Vance Habner pointed out, Jesus wasn't crucified for saying, behold the lilies of the field, how they grow but for saying, behold the Pharisees, how they steal. So why did Jesus call out the Pharisees like he did? 
After all, there were some sincere, God-loving Pharisees, as well as self-seeking ones. Some of Jesus' own followers, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, were Pharisees. So why this torrent of rebuke? I think the answer is that Jesus loved the Pharisaic ideal, which was to be separated from worldliness and sin in order to live a life of beauty and holiness to God. But he hated the Pharisaic practice, which was filled with hypocrisy and a condemning spirit. Jesus understood that that beautiful ideal that they held would never be lived out in that way. Hypocrisy would kill it, and perhaps it already had. Jesus knew that hypocrisy is highly contagious. Just being in the same room with a hypocrite is enough to infect a person, and the symptoms are immediate. The pharisaical ideal of holiness before God had been undermined by the contagion of hypocrisy before men. And the only cure for hypocrisy then, now, is truth. Truth revealed, which Jesus did, and truth accepted, which the Pharisees did not do. That's the only cure for what is a dreadful disease. Now, I mentioned last week that in all of Jesus' many warnings to people about the kinds of things that undermine the salvation life, two merited a double warning. One of those things, as we saw last week, was greed, which can make a shambles of a Christian's life. The other is hypocrisy. Be careful, Jesus warned. This is in Mark chapter 8, but it's also repeated in Matthew. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. That, by the way, is the same formula we had in last week in Luke. Be careful. Watch out. The disciples didn't at first understand the allusion to the yeast of the Pharisees, but Jesus went on to explain what he meant in that context. Here, Luke tells us again, the yeast of the Pharisees, chapter 12 now, verse 1, is hypocrisy. Jesus uses the image of hypocrisy, or of yeast, because hypocrisy, like yeast, spreads it multiplies with incredible speed and it saturates everything. Hypocrisy will saturate a church committee, a board, a Sunday school class, an entire church, unless it's stopped. Just as it saturated first century Phariseeism. You might say, okay, so if that's the case, what's the big deal? I mean, there's a little hypocrisy in all of us, right? And sad to say, you're absolutely right. There is. But you're entirely wrong to think that that somehow makes it unimportant. To ask why people make such a big deal out of hypocrisy when all of us have at least a little of it is like someone in 13th century Europe saying, why is everybody making such a big fuss out of the Black Plague? It's it's not like some people have it and others don't. We all do. But that's what makes it a big deal. The universality of hypocrisy makes it worse, not better. I think we think it makes it better because we have this crazy idea that the Christian life is some kind of competition in which we're judged in comparison to each other. That your great hypocrisy makes my small hypocrisy more acceptable. That may be the way that it works in figure skating or gymnastics, but not here. The Christian life is not a competition. You don't fare better because I fare worse. We're living a life. We're not doing a triple axel. If I fall down, your score doesn't improve. I just get in your way. 
So why did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees so vigorously? Because he knew that hypocrisy was killing them and that only truth could save them, truth about themselves and truth about God. He knew that hypocrisy was quietly eating away at their souls. And there wouldn't be much left when it was done. I once, years ago, changed a battery out of my car. Back in the days when you couldn't go to Walmart and buy a battery. You go down to the garage and buy a battery. And uh, I changed the battery out. I lifted it out of the, the battery compartment and held it against myself as I went and opened my trunk and stuck it in my trunk so that I could take it down to the garage. A few minutes later, I, I was talking to someone. They said, what happened to your jacket? And I looked down, and without my knowledge, that battery acid had leaked onto my jacket and was just turning it to dust. Hypocrisy does the same thing to your soul. The first thing it does is take your attention off of Christ and fix it on yourself. Now, that may not sound bad until you realize that you can't follow the Lord Jesus when you're looking at yourself. You'll get lost before you know it. Hypocrisy... I suspect is the reason that some people have so much trouble knowing what the Lord's will is for their life. Because they just can't look at him. They're always looking at themselves. And if your attention continues on yourself and not on Christ, your faith will begin to wither. Focusing on yourself, and it doesn't matter whether you're focusing on your accomplishments or your failures, will make trust in Christ impossible. Faith only grows as we keep Jesus in view. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. Fix your attention on yourself, and your faith in yourself may grow or it may decrease, but your faith in Christ will certainly weather. And hypocrisy causes us to focus our attention on ourselves. It's also dangerous because it's competitive and therefore comparative by its very nature. But Paul warned, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves to themselves, they are not wise. Hypocrisy obliges me to compete with you instead of complying to Jesus. The fact is, while I'm acting hypocritically, I can't even think about obeying Christ. If hypocrisy is the reason that I go to church... And around the country and over many centuries, that's the reason many people go. If that's the reason I go to church, going to church will actually make it harder for me to know Jesus, not easier. And, and I think that's why when some people give up the church and then they write about it in some memoir and talk about how freeing it is and how much better they feel, I think they feel better, not because they gave up on the church, and much less because they gave up on Christ, but because they gave up on hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it not only threatens your faith life, it threatens others as well. Many church parents destroy their children's faith by raising them in an atmosphere of hypocrisy. If there should ever be an hypocrisy-free environment, it ought to be in our homes where our children can grow as God intended, hypocrisy poses an imminent danger to them. Jesus under, uh, understood that, but so did St. Paul. And because he understood that hypocrisy poses immediate danger to others, he got in Peter's face when he came to Antioch and began to act hypocritically. He knew that Peter's spiritual life was not the only one that was at risk. 
As Paul later told the story to the Galatians, he said the other Jews joined him, he's talking about Peter, in his hypocrisy, so that by his, their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, what could move one apostle to rebuke another, <clears throat> and that being Peter himself, in public? The same thing that moved Jesus to rebuke the Pharisees in public. Hypocrisy. It's that bad. It's that dangerous. But as dangerous as it is to our families, our friends, our church, it's even more dangerous to us as individuals. Hypocrisy will prevent us from growing in Christ. I think it's a major reason people, after many years in the church, can say things like, I just can't trust God. Or, I know it's not right, but I'm going to do it anyway. Or, I don't feel like God is with me. Often when people question the truth of God, they do that because of the falseness of their own lives. Ironically, when you're a sham, you can't believe that others, even God, is genuine. When we act hypocritically, we wear a mask. That's the idea behind the word. <clears throat> and a hypocrite in ancient Greece was a stage actor. So we think of the word in negative terms. They didn't think of the word necessarily negatively. A hypocrite was a stage actor. And at that time, actors held a mask in front of their face and answered, see the masks that I have up on the screen? Those masks come from ancient Greece that you see in theaters all over the place. They would hold a mask up in front of their face and answer from under. That's the derivation of the word. They'd answer from under the mask. If I'm acting when I come to church on Sunday, then the fellowship, the sermon, the Bible reading, the prayers, they all just become part of the production. It isn't the real me that's being exposed to biblical truth. It's the actor, the false self. But not even biblical truth can make a falsehood real. A falsehood, false self may grow more sophisticated in its portrayal of Christian virtue, but it can't grow more virtuous because it's not real. The hypocrite will never grow into a better Christian, only into a bigger hypocrite. A false person simply can't believe in a real God, which is why unbelief always accompanies hypocrisy, always. And the only way to overcome that kind of unbelief is not by learning a lot of things, it's by dealing with the hypocrisy that underlies it. It's the only way. Now, this is hard stuff. Now, I don't say this to condemn, but to help. Remember, all of us have been infected with this horrible disease, though it's progressed further in some than in others. And in a happy few, it's in remission, which is a beautiful thing. But we're all in danger. We must be real. Our spiritual lives depend on it. Look now at chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Notice Jesus spoke first to his disciples, though many thousands of people were present. The Greek word is the word that 
that is just translated into English as myriad. A myriad actually refers to tens of thousands, 10,000. And here are tens of thousands of people. It's a huge crowd. But Jesus addresses his disciples first and just lets the others listen in. Don't miss this fact. This is important to get. It is his disciples, not the crowd, his real followers, true believers, who are in danger of hypocrisy. We really like to think that the hypocrite is someone else. It's those kind of people. The reality, as Pogo put it long ago, we have met the enemy, and he is us. In the first century, nearly every family baked its own bread. So everyone was familiar with the way a little yeast would work through the entire loaf. When Jesus tells his followers to be on guard, he uses a word that means to hold your mind towards something. That is to be constantly aware of it. He wanted his followers to be constantly aware of the serious threat that hypocrisy posed to them. So he warned them to keep alert to it, not in other people's lives, but in their own. How do we do that? What steps can we take? Well, I think we start by admitting that hypocrisy is our problem, not somebody else's. It's a danger to me, not just to you. And once I've done that, once I've faced the reality of that, then because hypocrisy depends on secrecy, I must remember, this is verse 2, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. That idea is presented repeatedly throughout Scripture. In the end, hypocrisy is a losing endeavor. Who I really am will be disclosed. What I've hidden will be made known. Jesus is pointing his hearers forward to the time of his revelation and the judgment of God. The day's coming, and God hasten it. When Jesus will return, and when he appears, as St. Paul tells the Colossians, we will appear with him. We'll appear. What will then appear will not be some carefully crafted projection, but the true self that we've been crafting day in and day out, either with the grace of God or without it. And blessed is the man or woman who, like the apostle, can say in that day, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In that day, nothing will remain hidden. Look at verse 3. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. If we gave as much effort to shaping our souls, or being shaped, which is more like it, as we spend shaping our public image, most of us would be saints by now. We would be far advanced in the beauty and holiness of God. We would be free sons and daughters of God, strong, joyful, and full of peace. It saddens me to think how much further along I might be in the love and peace of God if over the years I put the same energy into being as I put into appearing. But long before the day of judgment comes, there will be more people aware of who we really are than we ever dreamed. Some people come equipped with hypocrisy detectors. 
They sense it. They smell it like a bloodhound on a scent. I'm one of those people. And when people like that sense hypocrisy, they go on alert. They know intuitively that you can't trust a projection. You can only trust a person. The next time you find yourself playing the hypocrite, acting apart, pretending to be more religious or knowledgeable or generous than you really are, remember that what you're doing at that moment will be found out. And you know what? That is a good thing. Thank God for it. It's a mercy. God will not be satisfied with anything but the real you. Wherever you find hypocrisy, you can be sure that you'll also find fear. Fear of rejection, of humiliation, of failure, of punishment. See, people don't play the hypocrite for fun, but for fear. Jesus, of course, understood that. And so he addresses the role of fear in hypocrisy. Look at verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. By the way, this is the only place in the synoptic gospels that Jesus addresses people as his friends. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after, killing, after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Some people have mistakenly assumed that the one who has the power to throw us into hell is the devil. That is not the case. He has no such power. Only God can do that. Jesus is calling us to intentionally replace the fear of what others think of us with the fear of what God thinks. When we feel that fear of what others are thinking about us, he's calling us to think about what God is thinking and change our direction. The fear of what others think handicaps us. It makes us less than we really are. It makes us unreal. The fear of God, that good fear, full of love, charged with energy, invigorates us. It makes us more than we've ever been. It fills our potential with reality. But isn't fear of God a bad thing? Well, it would be if God were demanding and harsh and ready to lash out at us like an angry, harried parent. But God's not like that at all. God is tender even to sparrows. Look at verses 6 and 7. They're not five sparrows sold for two pennies. In one of the other Gospels, we read that two sparrows or four sparrows are sold for two pennies. That means you could get a deal once in a while and get five for two pennies. Are not five sparrows told for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Fear of God is right and good. It's similar to the kind of fear, that mix of awe and respect and the desire to please that a small child feels for his wise father. It's a fear that's not moved at all by the thought of punishment, but the thought of displeasing the one who loves you. As soon as we're possessed by a proper, beautiful, healthy fear of God, we shall be dispossessed by the hypocritical, false self. There's more. Look at verses 8 and 9. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men 
the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God, but he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. See, we usually think of hypocrisy as a mask that makes us look better than we are, that makes us look more spiritual than we are. But there is a hypocrisy that makes us look less spiritual, less concerned about the things of God than we really are. Some people pretend not to belong to Christ when they're around people who would despise them for it or make fun of them. I was that way for far too long. Early in my faith, I, when I was around people who made fun of Christians, which was often who thought of them as weak and feminine, I downplayed my faith in Jesus. God forgive me. And he has. I was cowed into pretending to be something other than what I really was, a follower of Jesus, and it was all because of fear. We must face our fears and face them honestly. And when we do, we'll be humbled. We fear that we're not good enough, fear that we're not worthy, fear that we'll fail, be rejected, cast off. We fear that we'll be forgotten, that bad things will happen to us like God's poor sparrow that falls to the ground and no one will be there to catch us. And there's all kinds of evidence to support our fears. And yet we must face them. But it's better not to face them than to face them alone. We mustn't face them without Jesus. He will assure us that though we fall, God will catch us. Though we suffer, it will not be wasted. Though others reject us, even father and mother, the Lord will take us in. Even when by death's stroke we fall into the grave, as we someday shall, there will be arms stretched wide to catch us. The same arms that were stretched wide on a cross. Didn't you know? It wasn't a Roman soldier that forced Jesus to stretch his arms out on the cross. It was you. He stretched them out to catch you. but not the false you, which is a damned projection. And I mean that literally. It is cursed by God and doomed to destruction. The false you will not survive. He stretched them out to catch the real you. That you has have yet have caught only glimpses. The real you that God loves completely and to our amazement, is completely lovable. Only the real you can ever feel the love of God. This is important. Only the real you, a projection, a hypocritical false self, can never, ever know the love of God or the peace of God or the joy of the Lord or the grace of God or the mind of the Lord or the forgiveness of sins and we can go on and on. A false self can't know God. That's why Jesus repeatedly and emphatically denounced hypocrisy. 
and let's denounce it too, but not in others. Let's get over that. That's foolish and a waste of time. But in ourselves, now and always, let's ask God to help us take off the masks and be the person he means us to be. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know this is hard for us. We don't remember when we started to pretend that we were better than we are. It was so long ago. And often we don't know when we lapse into it. And we don't even see the difference between the false and real self. But you do. And oh God, we need your help. Save us. Save us from ourselves, from our false selves. Save us from hypocrisy. Only you could go into a loaf of bread and take out the yeast. We can't do it. We are so dependent on you, but we ask you for help. Come and rid us of hypocrisy now and forever. For our sakes, but also for the sake of the one that we love. For the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.